Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, I pray you give me grace in this time. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you open the eyes of souls that are here in my hearing who do not know you, who do not know Christ. And I pray that they would turn to him even today. I pray that your people would celebrate your work even greater. I pray that they would discern wonderful things from your word. I pray that they would be reminded of the priority of that old, old story and that they would never depart from telling it, that it would always be their priority. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there are multiple sub-Christian and anti-Christian religions that lay claim to this concept of a restoration of the supposedly now corrupted apostolic Christianity. The idea is the New Testament in particular um, was changed, its texts were changed, it's no longer reliable, and so somebody at a later point had to come along and make revisions. Mormonism... Uh, offers this as its chief precept as a restoration that occurred under Joseph Smith. Divine revelation came. <coughs> Jehovah's Witnesses also operate under this premise. Uh, even Roman Catholicism makes a sort of kind of similar claim. I don't want to be unfair to them. But this is how their officials operate, and chiefly the Pope. Through him decrees are given down through the course of time, and these have the power to correct and amend Christianity because, obviously, Christianity, as far as they are concerned, requires correction. That's why they have a dual-source view, and they are not sola scriptura. This whole concept, though, is biblically irreconcilable, and it's even logically irreconcilable, and I'll start to the former point. God makes very clear that he will always preserve a remnant from some of the earliest points in the Old Covenant. And then in the New Covenant, Jesus is going to build his church. That mustard seed is going to keep on growing, which is not to say it's going to grow at a uniform pace from generation to generation, but it is to say that it will certainly never be removed from the earth utterly, that we will always have a people, that he will always have a testimony, and that testimony will be true and it will be preserved from the beginning and for all time as long as we are here. And this is 
so fundamental to our faith that if this were ever proven false, our faith would be proven false. But then also as a logical and theological matter, if Yahweh cannot change, although the worship of him can be abrogated to reflect different dispensations, the core tenets of the faith cannot. And so you can have Peter get a, a, a message from God that certain non-moral Levitical laws have been done away with because their purpose was fulfilled, but the foundations once laid can be built upon, but they can never be destroyed in order to begin something altogether new. That's an irreconcilable and fatal flaw in the aforementioned religious cults, but it is also perceived to be so for the religion of our brothers and sisters in the first century, which is our religion in the present century. But back then, this misperception was perhaps exacerbated by the fact that they had been given a couple of new names. Those practitioners of the religion of Yahweh, largely by their detractors, but one that really, really stuck. And this uh, occurred in Acts back in chapter 11 and verse 26. For an entire year, they, Paul and Barnabas, met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians and Antioch. So did that then mark out with the old and in with the new? For reasons I just expressed, it had better not. And so the ability to show an unbroken link from Abraham to Christ running through Moses was critical to first century apologetics. And I would argue strenuously to the defense of the Christian faith in every century, including this one. Now, apologetics is a very important aspect of Christian thought and philosophy. Uh, it sounds like apology, but in English that means something very different than it does in Greek. It just means to make a defense of, to defend the cardinal claims of our faith. But I do believe that the modern priority in Christian apologetics has strayed. I believe that many of them have lost their way. The priority is upon the transcendentals, truth, goodness, beauty. Now, I say priority, I don't say place, because this is a tremendous weapon in the Christian's arsenal. The fact that without God, they can account for logic, and it isn't just some general concept of God that'll do. God has to become man, because the uh, eternal must become imminent. You have to have a mechanism to get those great eternal concepts that are out there in the ether and in reality in the mind of God into man, and that happens in the incarnation when God becomes a man. This is something that we should speak about and something that we do. But the greatest use of and the greatest category of Christian apologetics by far is proving that Jesus is the Christ from the Scriptures. And to approach this from other angles first is almost working backwards. For, another, or for a, an example from another branch of Christian apologetics, you can look at creation apologetics. Did God really create the world and everything in it in six literal days? Well, yes, of course he did. But we live in a world that has been indoctrinated into the absurdity of complexity without design that spontaneously manifests over vast periods of time, and so this is difficult for them. It should be very easy, but it's not. But it does become a lot easier if God said that the Messiah would be born at a certain time, hundreds of years ahead of time, and that he would be born of a very specific line, lineage, and that he would minister in a very specific way, and that he would fulfill the law perfectly, and that he would suffer unto death, but then rise from the dead, and then he did. 
if those supernatural claims can be proven, and they can, then all the other supernatural claims of the Bible become possible, plausible, and in fact, inevitable. But perhaps you're intimidated by that college term and you think that apologetics is beyond you. Many Christians are intimidated by that, but you really should not be. Every Christian that is simply obedient to the commands of the word to know the word can engage in this most critical strain of Christian apologetics. Do you have the ability to tell a story? Of course you do. All of us do. You can have better storytellers, you can have worse storytellers. But if you can tell a story, then you can communicate to the world the greatest message that we have, and this is, again, the greatest strain of Christian apologetics, and this is what Paul engages with in our text, and this is how. And now we will look to his approach that we may learn from it. And besides that, we will glean many more lessons as well, and one very, very primary and fundamental to the human experience. So look to the text again, Acts 13, starting in verse 14, and we will work our way through again to verse 41. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now, I will say here that I have a little bit of a difficult time reconciling what just occurred there in the text. It's not impossible for me to reconcile, but it is certainly surprising. And I'm not referring here to this practice of synagogue officials inviting a traveling rabbi to stand up and give a word of exhortation. That was very, very common. What I am referring to is the fact that they have asked Paul to, being that he is the great enemy of the Sanhedrin. He would be considered the arch-heretic of his age. So what accounts for this? Well, there are a few possibilities, I think. Uh, Perhaps these gentlemen are Christ-curious. No doubt they have heard about the Christian sect growing up, and this then gives them an opportunity to hear about it from a master, a man that would be considered as such. Perhaps they have family members and close friends who have converted to Christianity. The likelihood of that is extremely high. And so from that angle, too, they are interested. But whatever the reason, the Lord has given him a profound opportunity here, and he is not going to waste it. Going on in verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And I'll remind you of the two groups that we identified last time. Men of Israel is Jews. You who fear God is that uh, um, category, though not necessarily technical category, of the God-fearing Gentile. And they are in the court of the Gentiles here, so everybody is present. And then he goes on and says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he led them out from it. Now the beginning here, and the way that he approaches this, is designed to establish many things. A common history is one of them between what is now being called uh, Christianity and what has always been known as Judaism. This, again, is good contextualization. We are very used to the bad kind. This is the good kind. They share this history. He is right to raise it. It would be kind of absurd for him not to. He is establishing a common bond with them through the use of our fathers. It is our, not yours, theirs. They share this. 
This is also designed to align Paul's teaching to their history. More than anything, though, Paul is placing in the ground a seed that's going to grow into Christ crucified. That's his objective from right now. Everything that comes next facilitates this. There are no wasted words. There are no parenthetical digressions that just more make you sort of go, huh? And Paul doesn't have those sorts of parenthetical digressions, but he does have parenthetical digressions. If you're familiar with his writings, the longest in any, I want to say there's one in Ephesians that goes on in the Greek for, I think, 101 words. So he's given to sidetracks, very meaningful and very important ones, especially when it comes to uh, spontaneous praise of the Lord, but he doesn't do any of that here. He is in a word simple, and he is in two words, and to steal from, I believe, A.W. Pink, he is simple and profound. And in trying to follow his example, you shouldn't fret about the profound part. Okay? You may not think that you can achieve that. I assure you, you can. And the, and the reason why I am certain of this is because the gospel takes care of that all on its own. There has never been a more profound message than this. God saves sinners. And who is this God? He is God from eternity past. And bound up in him is all knowledge and all wisdom and all love. And he has communicated these things to the world through his son. See? All you got to do is tell it like it is. And that second part will come. But our primary concern is to be understood. And in order for that to happen, you need to not get distracted. As Paul does not get distracted. And to flesh that point out further, there are some attempts to begin a gospel conversation or presentation that are not terribly wise or even that may be unbiblical. But within the biblical approaches to this, there's a lot of room to account for present circumstances on whom you're speaking to. But whomever you are speaking to and in whatever setting, make sure that you have your eye on the prize from the beginning. They may be different than you. They may be different than people that you're used to speaking to. Their situation may be different as well. But what they need is just the same as what you needed. It is just the same as what everyone needs. And that is Christ. It is, as he'll get to later, forgiveness. You know, in sanctification, which is what we're involved in here primarily, although evangelism as well, but in sanctification you have to speak about everything. Okay, the whole counsel of God. It's a, a burden, a blessing, but it's also a burden. But when you speak of salvation to unbelievers, it's much more simple than that. You see that here with Paul. He's going to aim directly at Christ from the word go, and then he's going to drive at Christ crucified until he gets there. But Paul's salvation path begins first with their fathers which although I do not think that refers exclusively to Abraham, I am guessing that he would be the primary patriarch brought to their minds by that reference. And there's much to say about the great patriarch Abraham, also Isaac and Jacob, but Paul says none of it here. He does not even, in fact, name one of the patriarchs in particular, and this, I think, is not an accident. I believe it is intentional. And I believe that Paul's point in doing this is revealed in the content of this address taken as a whole, but also in the statement in verse 17, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great. Who is the emphasis upon? It's upon Yahweh. This is a story that necessarily involves the patriarchs and the people because in the way that God interacts 
with people. We understand his nature. But this is not a story about the patriarchs and the people. This is a story about God and his deliverance of them. And I think much is said here by what is not said. Jewish people were very often haughty as it pertained to their forefathers. And John 8 is a great example of this. We are sons of Abraham. And so perhaps for this reason, Abraham's not even raised. He's not even mentioned. Only the formation of a people by the free and unfettered choosing of God Almighty. Moving forward in the text, though, there is the captivity in Egypt. Verse 17, again, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great. During their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. There is no way, reasonably speaking, to talk to a Jew about God's deliverance and skip over this occurrence of it. This is uh, top of mind for them. It is central to their worship and to so many of the psalms that they used in worship and that we still use in worship. This is foundational. Paul's message here, though, is that in slavery he made them great and in deliverance he revealed his greatness to them. And then in verse 18, for a period of about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. Now can you feel me about to pounce upon you with some message about church members' obstinance as he put up with them. You know, we have to put up with each other at some points and people have to be put up with. Well, I probably wouldn't avail myself of such an opportunity anyhow, but even if I was inclined to do so, could not do that from this text because a manuscript edition is split about down the middle. And half of it says he put up with them, and the other half says that he cared for them. So I don't know which is which, and I can't build a strong case based upon either. But I will say that in either event, both are true, and neither really changes the meaning of this. But continuing in verse 19, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. Now at this point, and all points through this, Don't lose the theme and the details. Details are important. But their primary importance is that they facilitate and clarify the primary theme. And that is deliverance. But Paul is moving his hearers from deliverance more broadly to a deliverer specifically. Pick up again in verse 20. And after these things he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And here, the theme remains deliverance, but it is interrupted by a reminder of the deliverer that wasn't. Saul has a unique role in redemptive history. And it is unique, I say, in degree, but not in kind. Israel had many idols. He was one of them. But none of those idols better demonstrated the folly of seeking a savior outside of God's design. Saul forever has the dubious distinction of being the premier example of what happens when we will unto ourselves a Messiah instead of waiting for salvation according to God's will. Saul was not God's man in the sense that the people thought. They wanted a king because they were idolaters, but because God does not honor idolatry, he turned their idol into an instrument of their judgment. And it became a plague upon them. Though he started out as a beacon of hope. 
The promise of a king soon proved to be a mirage. It soon, at, at the first, rather, Saul was like manna from heaven. Then he turned out to be manna from heaven after you let it set too long. If you recall, it turns to worms. Saul was everything that a king ought to be based upon appearance, but nothing of what a king ought to be in terms of character. And so, verse 22, after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Now, was David perfect? No. Not close. And if you know the story, then you already knew that. Let me ask you, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? When you consider that phrase, perhaps you emphasize the end of it, and it's a glorious statement. It is. To desire what God desires, to only be satisfied with what God is satisfied, but you shouldn't lose sight of the inclusion of that three-letter word, man, because he was still a man. Okay, David certainly did not lose sight of this. In sin did my mother conceive me. And by the way, David is named here not to bestow honor upon him, but because he is, as John wrote in the book of Revelation, the root and the branch of the Lord Jesus. Scripture was very clear that the path to the king of kings ran through King David, and so he must be identified by name and thus Paul continues in this line, verse 23, from the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And here is where, as far as they are concerned, this same old story takes a direction they are not used to and perhaps did not anticipate. There is a thought that Paul here is borrowing from the content and progression of a few passages working in concert with each other. Deuteronomy 4 1 Samuel 13, 2 Samuel 7. In fact, he is. Is he intentionally doing that? I don't know. Is it just so uh, deep into his mind that he exudes it naturally, perhaps? But his hearers, being very well versed in these passages, may have picked up on this, but perhaps it's at this point that they think he has diverged, when in fact he most certainly has not. It is the Christless that either run the Old Covenant salvation narrative into a ditch or make it diverge wildly. It is here, though, perhaps for the first time that these people are hearing the honest end to a story that they have heard their whole lives, which is also the only thing that makes rational sense of their religion. And this effect is greatly amplified because they don't have a casual concept of religion. They're not merely passive hearers. They have a rigorous concept of religion. It is all of their lives. If you need clarification on this point, read the book of Leviticus, and just in reading the activities that they were required to do, it will produce a sort of exhaustion in you. And to bolster the point even further, Paul raises the ministry of a man of whom they have heard and for whom they have much respect, but the nature of whose ministry they have not yet understood. Verse 24, after John, meaning the Baptist, had proclaimed before his coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now the question may arise in the course of study through the Old Testament. Who was the greatest of Old Covenant prophets? Is it Elijah? 
His ministry was attended to by tremendous miracles. Or Elisha, of whom the same is true. Now the answer is a little bit tricky because it's not found in the Old Testament. As far as who is the greatest Old Covenant prophet. It is found in the New Testament. And it is inarguably John the Baptist. He never performed a miracle like Elijah or Elisha, but he saw the Savior with his own eyes. And I can be certain, as I am a Christian, and as I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that there isn't a single Old Covenant prophet who would not have sacrificed all the miracles that were performed through them to just set eyes on the King of Glory. And their great kinsman, Redeemer. And as to the nature of his ministry versus that of the other prophets, well, he had the best of this too. It's his great privilege to simply preach Christ crucified. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as Paul is making this point, it was not him. He never claimed that it was him. He had no messianic pretensions. He was there as a voice of one crying out in the wilderness to testify to the Lord Jesus. And he did this with profound success. And you can tell that he indeed was successful based upon our passage. It's been many years since John the Baptist was martyred, and yet his voice is still being heard, and his testimony is still critical to proving to these men that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 26, brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. Now, if you are a Christian, you understand the, the following effect. Every passage of Scripture has the ability to wound and heal, and perhaps both all at once. You've experienced this from many passages. You see this effect here again. On the one hand, to them, the message of this salvation has been sent. Glory to God. They received the oracles from God. They have received the Messiah, and they have received the word that that Messiah has been given to them. On the other hand, to them, the message of this salvation has been sent and they have thus far refused to hear it. It heals and it cuts. And perhaps they are not alone in this. Perhaps there are those in this room who share in their sin. And it's not actually perhaps. I have it on your own testimony from those of you who are here that this is indeed the case. You have heard and you have heard and you have heard. To you, the message of this salvation has been sent. And yet you have turned your back upon it. You have hardened your heart to it. You have stiffened your neck. And perhaps you have blamed any number of other factors as to why you are still in your sin. But it is your sin. And therefore, you are responsible for it as they are responsible for theirs. It is a posture of rebellion. And their posture of rebellion he addresses next. And humanity in general, as represented by the Jewish rulers. Verses 27 through 29, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. The men who orchestrated and carried out Christ's murder and the men who are now hearing Paul and you all who are now hearing me 
share many things in common as a result of our common natures. And one of them is this. We all want to play a central role in our own salvation. Well, perhaps my mother was not the only mother who issued the following warning. Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. I believe it was Edwards who said every man would murder God if only he could get to him. Oh, that is an incredible statement. And it seems too incredible to believe at first blush, but when you think on it further, it becomes obviously true, given that when we could get to him, we did in fact murder him. But the we here, as I say that, is something that we have a hard time with. We were not, according to the text, in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. We were not there to condemn him, or were we? I mean, the concept of representation is something that we understand well in a republic, at least as a theoretical matter. Our politicians are supposed to represent us, though they seldom actually do. Typically, they represent themselves, but in theory, they're there to uh, represent our interests. Well, just apply democratic representation to this, and I think you'll understand. Only in this instance, you can remove the imperfections. Our representatives by putting Christ upon the cross, represented our interests perfectly. Well, it seems unfair, though, to lump everybody together like this, especially considering the vile nature of the lump that I'm combining us all into, by the way. And yet, haters of God in Romans 1 is a general statement on the human race, general and all-inclusive. And what would hate do if there were no consequences? If all the parameters were removed, it would fulfill its ultimate desire, which is murder. And if you did murder God without a resurrection to follow, there could be no consequences because it is God who brings the consequences and he would no longer be there. And that is why they murdered Christ. And that's why I would have too, had I been there in my natural state, unrestrained even by the common grace of God. I am not good by nature. I am vile by nature. I'm not just in the darkness. I am the darkness. And I will fight to preserve my own life as such. As the raccoons that I put down will bite at my hand in order to kill me before I kill them so that they can't kill my chickens, I will fight for my own existence. And spiritually speaking, that means putting Christ down. And so I can sympathize. And typically, being sympathetic to evil is evil. But with this evil, we must be sympathetic of a kind. Because if we are not, we will not understand our own evil. And we will inevitably diminish the sins for which Christ died while simultaneously creating of them a category of sinner that is far worse than us. So if I may put all this to rest, simply put, we are all wannabe God-killers. And as Christians, we have been redeemed from this too. But it turns out, gloriously so, that killing God is a futile endeavor because of, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those Going on in verse 31, who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. Now again, the point must be made that they are saying this as though it is common knowledge. And they are not being laughed out of the rooms and the gatherings that they are saying it to. 
The apostles continue to repeat this over and over and over again. And this claim is supernatural. There's no explanation of it. Now, there are conspiratorial explanations, but they make no sense. And they apparently haven't gained as much traction as the Sanhedrin would have liked because still he says this, again, nobody laughs, everybody takes it seriously. There were 500 people that the Lord Jesus appeared to, and they are all Jews. And this is a Jewish community. And how many degrees of separation are there between people? How many people are all of us connected to? This is their family members and their friends in so many instances who saw a living Savior after he had been publicly mutilated. Who bore only the marks on his hands and upon his feet because he chose to keep those because it glorified him to do so. Battle wounds demonstrating he had won the war. But otherwise, fine, healthy, glorified. Pick up again in verse 32, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among the fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Now, let me stop here just for a moment and warn you of something that's coming. And it's that word that carries so much weight in Scripture. Therefore. A therefore is coming next. I.e., Christ is raised Therefore, it follows that dot, dot, dot. And there's a lot in the dot, dot, dot. And we're going to get there. But the promises that he applies to Christ from, come from, rather, Psalm 2. They come from Psalm 16 and Isaiah 55. And they speak that death was necessary for the Messiah. But because he was truly the Messiah, resurrection was inevitable. And through his death and resurrection, we receive what every human soul is burdened for most. Do you know what that is? What is it that bears down upon you in your natural state more than anything else? Unforgiveness. And that is why death weighs so heavy on the mind. Verses 38 and 39. Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now, religion can turn into a really technical consideration. There's a necessary place for this. It has to be balanced. I confess I've probably become imbalanced in this, but it is a scholarly pursuit. We love the Lord with our minds, too. But at its root, this could not be more simple. Christian, religion at its deepest foundation for you in your understanding is that you need to be forgiven and this is the message of how you can be forgiven your sins heinous as they were necessitated the murder of god's own son but god supplied 
that answer, that solution, so that you could be reconciled to Him, so that you no longer bore the weight of your own unforgiveness. I'm speaking again of things that are commonly shared by all God's image bearers. Here is one that rises above the rest. We are all guilty as sin, and we all know it. Some of us are afflicted by a greater skill when it comes to suppressing this knowledge, but none of us can do it perfectly. And an astute observer can see these inconsistencies and these contradictions. The evidence is everywhere. Why are there so many books on self-acceptance? And not just books, but podcasts, movies. Everything, in fact, in our society is geared heavily towards this. You are good just the way that you are. You are perfect, needing nothing. It is everybody else's responsibility to merely accept you. There's nothing that needs to be changed. Why is that message so loud if it is so obvious and so true? Because you've got to shout lies, and you've got to shout them all the louder, the more absurd that they are. And a lie like this is so absurd that you need constant affirmation. Otherwise, it will fall apart. Listen to me, sinner. As I speak to you on a subject of which I have great credibility, perhaps more than any other, because I have sinned much, you cannot fix this. You cannot lie this away. The noise of the day is a distraction the social circles that you put yourself in, the people that you put yourselves around, the conversations that you have to fill the gap and fill the void and just supply some stimulation. But when you lie down at night and you cannot sleep and you are overcome by anxiety, this is what you're feeling the effects of. A soul that is burdened by the weight of its own sin that is desperate for deliverance, that is desperate for forgiveness. And it is worth pointing out, by the way, that many of the people that Paul is talking to now have suppressed their need for forgiveness. We are going to spend all of next week talking about God's law and what he says about it in this passage and how it pertains to us. But suffice to say for now that because of the way that they have used God's law, they have as a doctrinal matter effectively erased their need for forgiveness. But as human beings, we have all kinds of blessed inconsistencies. And here is one. No matter how successful you may be at purging the necessity of personal forgiveness from your mind, you're never going to rid your soul of the weight of unforgiveness. This doesn't sound like much of a blessing, but I assure you it is. Because if you don't feel the disease, you're not going to seek a remedy. And my friend, you need the remedy because without it, you're not just going to continue on the path that you're on, bearing the weight, the crushing burden of your sins, knowing instinctively on a soul level that you need forgiveness, but doing everything that you can to deny your necessity, you will also bear the eternal consequences of it. And for as bad as it is in this life to carry that burden around, what it produces in the next life is beyond what I can imagine and far beyond what I can tell you now. Please don't pretend that you don't need this. It's a ridiculous proposition 
in general, but especially so given the company that you keep as you sit in this room. If the people that sit around you are indeed Christians at all, then every one of us has been brought to the recognition of this. And because we want any solution to this problem other than we are sinners, we would have found a solution somewhere else if there was one. Who wants to acknowledge that in and of themselves they have no hope? We are all self-starters. We all want to believe that we can affect our own situation ultimately and in all respects. We all want to be our own messiahs. Everybody here who is a Christian recognized that they couldn't be. And so they turned in desperation to the Lord Jesus. You need not lie to yourself here. You're not in that kind of a gathering. Turn to Christ today. Be relieved of that burden today. And join us. And we're here and we're standing where we are, not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that Christ did for us. Do not turn away. And I could offer you a myriad of warnings from a, a myriad of different perspectives, all kinds of reasons why you should not leave this place having not trusted on the Lord Jesus to do for you what you cannot. But instead, I think I will simply leave you with Paul's warning verbatim. And with this, I will close this address. Verses 40 and 41. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Heavenly Father, week in and week out, Lord, we preach Christ here. And week in and week out, there remain those among us who are unsaved, who are unforgiven, who have not been delivered. And in your design, you've not given this capacity to deliver to any man, certainly not me, it has to be the work of your spirit, and I pray that your spirit would open their eyes even now to their desperate need. Help them to know, Lord Jesus, that they don't need to live like this, and they don't need to die in this state. And I praise you, and I thank you for these things. Heavenly Father, in your Son's name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, 
iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.